Welcome to The Burn, Beyond Fire Stop. I'm your host, John Zalepka. Our show is focused on life safety and code compliance in the built environment, which puts me on a mission to find the most interesting people in this space to get their unique perspectives. Our hope is that our listening audience walks away with an understanding of how our guests and their businesses also contribute to the promotion of life safety of whatever is being built. Our show is brought to you by Specified Technologies, also known as STI. Since 1990, STI has been a leading global provider of innovative fire protective solutions that help stop the spread of fire, smoke, and hot gases. Now, Bill Koffel, president of Koffel Associates, is no stranger to these such topics. Having established a fire protection engineering firm and being recognized as the expert in fire protection codes and standards. So talk about a perfect guest for this show. It's an absolute honor. Hello, Bill. Welcome to The Burn. Wow. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Look forward to it. Well, hey, I always like to start things on a personal note rather than uh, jumping into the whole business of things. So I want to take you back, uh, back to College Park, late 1970s, if you don't mind. Go Terps. I see that you were a volunteer firefighter at Silver Spring Volunteer Fire Department while attending the University of Maryland. Now, did you have an experience that got you into life safety, or was there something even before that that maybe you got involved in volunteering to be a firefighter in the first place? Actually, John, it probably predated the time at College Park. Um, I grew up in a family where my father had been a volunteer firefighter years ago. I don't even really remember that uh, happening. And uh, I just had an interest in becoming involved in the fire department. So when I turned of age, which at that time it was uh, 16, I believe, maybe 18, that I could become a volunteer firefighter, I joined a small volunteer fire department in Collegeville, Pennsylvania. I was going to a liberal arts school at the time, Ursinus College, right in uh, southeast Pennsylvania, in a dual degree BA, Bachelor of Science in Engineering program. And... At that time, I knew nothing about fire protection engineering. Uh, but my chief, even though it was a very small community, he was very active. And at one point in time, he said, hey, Bill, are you aware of the program at Maryland? And as I prepared to transfer from this small liberal arts school to an engineering school, I, I went and interviewed at Maryland. And Dr. John Bryan, chairman of the department at the time, he just sold me on fire protection. And from that day forward, I knew that's what I, was, I wanted to do turn a hobby into a profession. No. Oh. oh, okay. So I was going to actually ask, I, I know that your your business is set up in the uh, the Maryland, Baltimore area. Are you from uh, Pennsylvania originally or the, the Maryland area also? I spent most of my adult life in Maryland, but I did grow up in Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah, I see in 1986, you founded Coffle Associates in Columbia, Maryland. Uh, did you always have an entrepreneurial bug or was there some event that, changed it all and you were like i'll do it myself <laughs> uh well that's too is an interesting question um i did not grow up in a family of entrepreneur i was the only one that started a business like uh i did uh but the event i think that probably changed my outlook on things was while we were pregnant with my first son my father passed away and at the time, I was commuting to a consulting firm in Northern Virginia, 55 miles each way, including the Washington, D.C. Beltway and all that traffic. And I just Oof. said, you know, there's got to be something else. And we didn't really want to move. So uh, I opted to give it a shot. 
And and here we are, many years later, right? I mean, you've you've done so many things, uh, and I was kind of researching you on on LinkedIn. Past president of the Society of Fire Protection Engineers. You've served on numerous uh, NFPA uh, technical committees, contributed to all types of panels and committees for UL and ICC. I mean, you're you're really committed. I mean, above and beyond in the fire protection and life safety industry. And it's very admirable. I mean, tell me, do you dream about governing codes and standards and design <laughs> guidelines? Uh, do you have a notebook next to your bed? <laughs> I've been accused by uh, by my wife that yes, I do dream about the life safety code. <laughs> I have the life safety code committed to memory. Uh, none of that is really true. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I will say that I do wake up in the middle of the night sometimes thinking about what can we do, what should we do, what do I need to do to address some issues. Right. Now, you mentioned the life safety, and, I, and you chaired many committees, specifically the NFPA 101. Uh, can you briefly give us just an overview of what the NFPA 101 is and some of the work that you've done there? So the Life Safety Code is kind of a unique document. Uh, probably all of the people listening have probably heard of a building code or a fire code. And a building code tends to address new construction. And if I look at the format of the most common building code, the International Building Code, it, it's kind of topics oriented. You know, we talk about corridors or we talk about smoke barriers or we talk about through penetration fire stop systems. Uh, and there are some sections where we will talk about some occupancy provisions. Uh, then we have the fire codes. And in the U.S., we really have two, NFPA 1 and the International Fire Code. Again, kind of generic talking about topics. So one of the things that makes the life safety code somewhat unique is it's occupancy specific. And while it goes through the same process as NFPA 1, you've got a technical committee, you've got a variety of experts on the committee, including representatives from the user community, the people who are regulated by the document. You know, you now have these in, in the Life Safety Code. You have a committee that deals with healthcare occupancies and assembly occupancies and residential occupancies. So you have this concentration of users from that particular occupancy, occupancy group that's part of that committee. So it's unique in that regard. The other thing that the Life Safety Code does that a building code doesn't do is it addresses new and existing buildings. And it does it in quite substantial detail, more detail than some of the fire codes do at times. So, you know, again, they really focus on what's the minimum level of life safety required in an as existing assembly occupancy or existing healthcare or existing educational. Great. And I, I know you've been around that, that life safety code for quite a while. And was there a particular year or, or group of years that, you know, you saw a lot of changes that you were a part of or maybe something that you helped to get adopted that you're most proud of? So over the years, there, there have been some significant changes, but I'll focus on two of those. Um, the 1981 edition of the Life Safety Code. So we're going back quite a ways. Uh, prior to that, the code for new healthcare occupancies gave people the option of building the building with or without sprinkler protection. And there was a lot of push to require sprinkler protection and even require sprinkler protection in existing buildings. And we did, I said, I'm sorry, I said 1981, 1991. Uh, we did some work for the American Hospital Association at the time. And I was their alternate representative on, at that time we called them subcommittees, the healthcare subcommittee. And we actually went to the, to the main committee, because the subcommittee did not support this, and said, 
you should change the code to require sprinklers in all new healthcare occupancies based upon some of the research that we had done. And furthermore, sprinklers should be required in any major rehab project in a healthcare facility. So our thought was that rather than go in and say effective on such and such a date, all existing healthcare occupancies had to be protected with a sprinkler system, which subsequently we have done with nursing homes, we have done with existing high-rise healthcare occupancies. But rather than do it that way, we said, look, as the facility, healthcare organization is doing some work, let's make sure they include sprinkler protection in that work. And we will eventually get buildings that are sprinkler to a percentage higher than uh, what we have today. So that was very effective. And when you look at the fire loss experience in the U.S. versus other countries, in particular in healthcare occupancies, I mean, there's a phenomenal difference. You know, a couple of years ago, we had 25 people die in a hospital fire in Saudi Arabia, followed up about a year or two later with the, the fire in South Korea. Uh, Earlier this week, we had the fire in Iraq where, I don't know the final numbers, but we're probably pushing almost 50 people dying in that hospital fire. We don't see that in the U.S. And I think a lot of it has to do with, one, the regulatory codes that are in effect, and secondly, the process, the regulatory process that is used for healthcare occupancies. So the second one that I take some pride in, this occurred in 2006. We added a new chapter, Chapter 43, uh, which deals with the rehabilitation of existing buildings. And it doesn't really affect healthcare that much, but this goes back to some work that was done. We did some work for housing and urban development to encourage the reuse of existing buildings. And what it does is it changes the old requirement that said, you know, if you do something new in an existing building, you need to bring it up to new construction requirements. And, and you drive around some of our inner city areas and you see these vacant buildings. And part of the reason is they can't afford to upgrade the building. So chapter 43 looks at it from the perspective of how much work is the owner proposing to do? And based upon that category of work is the term used in the code, the code may require you to do some additional work to bring the building up closer to requirements for new construction. Uh, and that, you know, I think it was a major change. Some of the states, New Jersey was one of the first states to adopt a similar requirement at the state level. Maryland did it under their smart growth policy with Governor Glendening. But we had a number of states adopting that, and then NFPA and eventually ICC with the International Existing Building Code uh, incorporated those requirements. I, those are two great points there. I mean, that first one that you mentioned with the uh, with healthcare, I know that you've you've helped some of those processes and authoring a lot of different manuals. I know you have that fire warning and, and safety systems for American Hospital Association. Uh, do you have anything else for the existing buildings, the one that you, you talked about there as well? Yeah, so actually Clay Ayler and I, Clay is a, uh, a principal within our firm. We authored a book for the ICC called International Existing Building Code Essentials. And that publication, that was based upon the 2018 edition. They'll be releasing the 2008, 
2021 edition here shortly. There's an additional co-author that's been added in 2021, a, a code official from the, the Midwest area. Uh, but that book is kind of like a handbook, if you will, uh, of why the code does some of the things that it does. And it kind of goes into the history of how we developed or why those code requirements were developed. And, and you wrote that with Clay, you said, from, from your company, right? Yes. All right. So let's get into your company since you brought it up. Um, why okay. don't you tell us a little bit more about some of the services and solutions that you offer? I mean, I know you do a lot of consulting and codes and standards development, but I guess where's your sweet spot there? So I refer to us as a general practice fire protection engineering firm. You know, when I first started in this profession, fire protection engineering was such a specialty. Um, and it has just continued to evolve and become more complex and, and involve far more issues than it did 40 years ago when I got involved initially. Uh, but we tend to offer services in most of those areas. We design fire protection systems. We work with architects and developers in the design of new buildings from a fire protection standpoint. We don't do structural or any of those things, but from a fire safety standpoint, uh, we'll work with uh, architects in the rehab of existing buildings. Uh, and then we do a fair amount of survey work. And that's what has really gotten us into the healthcare community. Yeah, we do work with new construction as well, but it's that survey and Back in 1985, I was a member of the Joint Commission Committee on Healthcare Sa uh, Safety, and the Joint Commission changed their survey process. Now, it has subsequently changed again, but at that time, they changed the process to basically have facilities self-identify problems. Go through and evaluate your building for compliance with the, the accreditation requirements, the code requirements, and if you identify your deficiencies and you have an acceptable plan for improvement, you know, we're not going to hit you hard during the survey process. We're going to recognize that you are managing your compliance. And that's a very unique approach to code enforcement. Part of my background includes being a, a fire protection engineer for the Maryland State Fire Marshal's office. And I was surveying buildings and, you know, there's very few owners when the fire marshal walks in the building, it's going to say, hey, come over here. Take a look at this. Is this really right the way we're doing this? I mean, no way. They're going to just leave it concealed. And if I find it or the surveyor finds it, inspector finds it, then so be it. Uh, but I think that was a unique approach. And unfortunately, not all regulatory agencies really bought onto that approach. So the Joint Commission has had to go back to the old see it, cite it concept. Uh, and, and unfortunately, personally, I think that's a step backwards. I know a lot of facilities are continuing to do the maintenance program. They are continuing to do the self-assessments because one of the problems with the see it, cite it approach, and, and think about it from STI's perspective, fire barriers. You know, if a surveyor walks in and there's a number of fire barriers or smoke barriers that penetrations aren't properly protected, and they cite that in the survey report, the facility has 60 days to correct that situation, or they have to ask for a time-limited waiver. Under the old process, we could go in, we could evaluate it, we could say these penetrations aren't properly protected, we could set up a reasonable time to correct them, we could set up a, a management program to try to keep that from happening again, and there was just a lot of incentive on the facility's part 
to be actively involved in that compliance activity. Yeah, I mean, so I, I guess, like you said, the the best thing you can do is teach it up front. Like education is is really what's going to, you know, make sure that there aren't compliance issues downstream there. And I, I know you do a lot of seminars and trainings. In fact, that's how we met last year uh, during the pandemic uh, when STI hosted the Healthcare Virtual Symposium. I, right, I, right. Thanks again for your participation in that. But I remember you talking about one of the things you, you talked about um, inspectors there, the NFPA uh, 915, the Standard for Remote Inspection. Can you can you tell us where we are with that? Is is the Joint Commission kind of not so interested in that since things are getting a little bit back to normal, I guess? Or what do you see about that? So the first thing we have to realize is the Joint Commission doesn't have full control over how they're going to survey buildings or what they're going to survey because they're acting as an agent of CMS. So whatever they do has to be authorized, approved, accepted by uh, CMS as well. But 915 is a new document in the NFPA system. It is uh, actually, I guess public input either has closed or will be closing here very shortly. Uh, a committee was assembled to prepare a draft. We put the draft document out. We were open for public input. The committee will be meeting uh, towards the end of August. We'll deal with the public input. Then we'll be open for public comment. But 915 really talks about a process of how we can do traditional inspection and acceptance test protocols without the regulatory agency necessarily being on site. Um, and presently, the scope is limited to acceptance test and commissioning of buildings. Uh, we do have some, so I guess the common period, the public input here period has closed because I've seen some of these. Uh, we do have public input that is suggesting we want to expand that to include uh, periodic inspection and test activities as well. But the concept, and this originated before COVID-19, was to give regulators an option, a, a reliable way to carry out and fulfill their responsibilities without actually having to be on site. From my perspective, the concept originated from some work that we were involved with several years ago over in the Middle East. And civil defense in Abu Dhabi adopted this protocol where they required some very high quality video recording of acceptance tests and it wasn't just systems so even passive fire protection you would have to do videos of if there's any special inspections being performed or just normal visual observation of the way um, openings and penetrations are being protective in the passive fire protection features of the building so these videos were being submitted to civil defense and part of the rationale at the time was to reduce delays, that civil defense was not causing project delays because trying to schedule them to come on site. So there was some acceptance of this. I, I know a building department in the Northwest that was using it. And part of the reason they were using it is because the distance between projects was so great. They would have building inspectors spending 45 minutes travel time for a 15 minute inspection and then 30 minutes to the next site. So it wasn't very productive. Uh, actually I had a discussion with New York City 
uh, Fire Prevention Bureau. Obviously, they're not as isolated as the Great Northwest is, but same thing can happen in Manhattan. It can For take sure. you 45 minutes <laughs> to get from one location to another very easily. <laughs> so they, they were looking at this concept as well. But COVID-19 just just like Zoom meetings and team meetings and virtual meetings, COVID-19 just pushed virtual or uh, remote inspections to the forefront because a lot of building departments and fire departments said, you know, how do we protect our employees when they're going on a job site with all these contractors out there who, who knows if they've been exposed to COVID-19 or not? So a lot of them started to rely on remote inspections. I know the city of North Las Vegas uh, implemented the program. And in talking with their director, she just anticipates that this will be ongoing. Like many of the things that have happened as a result of COVID-19, we look at it and say, gee, I sure hope that continues, right? Curbside pickup, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, appointments at doctor's offices that are real-time appointments (laughs) rather than going there and waiting 45 minutes. Uh, You know, she just anticipates that this is the future. She said we are far more efficient doing some of this work remotely. Not that everything can be done remotely, but we are more efficient doing it that way. Yeah, I mean, with the quality of video these days, I mean, it's just it's too easy and it just makes too much sense, like you said, especially when you consider not only – uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic and the forced separation, but some of the distance and just being able to, you know, do more things. Um, but what other changes did you see um, in the industry pop up as a result of the pandemic, maybe even in terms of healthcare facilities? Well, I, I think we had a lot of things and, and it'll be interesting to see if the codes respond to any of these. Uh, I would say that most healthcare organizations their emergency plans weren't set up for the pandemic. You know, in the past, we would have events. We would have a weather event in Texas or in Florida, and they tended to be regional in nature. And we could typically deal with that by relocating patients to a facility more inland or away from that weather event. COVID-19, I know initially it was kind of a Northeast event, but at one point in time, it became a national issue. And we didn't have the ability of moving patients from one location to another. We didn't have the ability of taking staff from one area to another. You know, initially during the pandemic, there were areas of the country that weren't affected that nurses and doctors were being relocated from those states to the Northeast or to California or the Northwest to deal with the situation. Then all of a sudden we had surge events in most of our states. And now we didn't have that ability to move that staff around. So I think we're going to see a lot of rethinking of the emergency plans. I know I've seen a lot of people pushing the government to step in to have resources stationed regionally around the country. You know, we saw all these um, temporary sites being set up in convention centers, in football fields, in schools, uh, you know, assembly spaces in hotels. And and that takes resources. You know, the construction industry is affected by this as well. So can they deliver the product? You know, we saw, that was when we first started to see some of the construction materials, material costs just skyrocket. 
um, the, the lack of availability of materials to set up those uh, temporary sites. But, um, you know, the, the push is, well, maybe the government should set up some staging areas that if we have this event again, they can take these, I'll refer to them as mass units, that dates me now, some people may not know that show, but mass units, and be able to, you know, basically set up field hospitals somewhere based upon resources that are already available. We don't have to go out and try to procure them. Um, inspection, test, and maintenance. So going back to NFPA 915 and automated testing, you know, there were challenges for facilities to maintain their facilities during the pandemic. In some states, uh, the health department prohibited facilities from allowing outside contractors into the facility. So how do, how do, how do we take a staff that's already stressed trying to deal with what they need to do to get their facility prepared to deal with the surge and then deal with this fact that we can't bring outside contractors in to do some of this work? And do they even have the resources? So I think we'll see some increased consideration to automated testing, maybe remote inspections. You know, think about barrier inspections. If, if I've got good video from when this building was built and we verified that the doors are proper and the through penetration fire stop systems are proper, now if I can come back and do another video and, and some of this could even be automated by video comparison. And this goes beyond my level of technology now, but you know, comparing images and the computer now tells us, well, you know, that device, that system doesn't look like it did when it was installed in this building three years ago. Maybe somebody needs to go out and look at that particular issue. So I, I see the whole preventive maintenance issue potentially changing with technology. Yeah, not not to plug our ourselves, but we do have a fire stop locator program that that helps to manage those barriers as well. And uh, so, what are some of the things that healthcare facilities can do to to ensure that in a case like the pandemic, where outside contractors can't come in, that they can be prepared to have some type of barrier management program in place? Uh, so that their own people can handle it in case that happens again. And and that probably goes back to your education question. You know, most healthcare organizations have barrier management programs. I don't know that a lot of other occupancies do, but most healthcare organizations do. So they're attempting, and I know it's an ongoing citation from the accrediting organizations, but it seems to have gotten a little bit better. They're attempting to manage the quality of their barriers. But you know, just having somebody on staff that could potentially uh, do that inspection if the need arose, because we can't bring outside contractors in. Uh, like I said, the challenge is that same staff person is probably being asked to do a lot of other things, setting up HEPA filters in the HVAC system and, and those types of things. But I, I would say just trying to make sure we have resources, at least within the organization. It may not be at the individual facility. A lot of these health organizations are quite large today. They could have internal resources that could do it in a crunch. Sure, and that's something that you can help them out with, right, Bill? Uh, barrier management consulting and new projects and, and even existing buildings for sure, right? 
I, I would say that that's something that both of us, our organizations, <laughs> sure. could work with. Because to be perfectly honest, you know, we know a good bit about fire stopping, but we don't know all the details of all your listed systems or anybody else's listed systems. So I can deal with it at the general level. You know, where are the barriers? What And these are included in the life safety drawings that's required by the Joint Commission. You know, what, what are the location of barriers? What are the fire resistance ratings or requirements to resist the passage of smoke or whatever? But, you know, when it really comes to is that system look like it's still going to perform the way we intended it to perform, perform when we installed it? I, I would look more towards a, a fire stop contractor to probably do that level of detailed sure. inspection. Sure. Awesome. Great information, Bill. Before I let you go, i got to ask, are you going to be in Nashville in a couple of weeks for the ASHI show in August? I am. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be interesting to see... Yeah, I have not heard from Ashy. I don't know if you have. Oh, it's it's what going. What the registration it's a go. looks like? You know, I I know there's a conference going on as we're recording this, or no, I guess it's next week in Las Vegas, which historically has been one of the biggest conferences, the International Security Conference, and I know they don't expect numbers to be that good, but I don't know what Ashy expects. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, hopefully we are getting back to some level of normalcy and and that exchange of information, you know, not just the formal education programs, but things like we just talked about, the ability for somebody to stop by an STI booth and talk to one of your people there and say, I've got this situation. I've got this type of penetration. Nobody seems to be able to give me an answer of what to do. And, you know, your person can say, well, we have a solution for you or, Let's look at some of our existing solutions and maybe we can adapt it and make it work, do an engineering judgment, whatever the case might be. Even what you just talked about, your locator software program, you know, making sure that facilities and or design professionals know that that's available. Yeah, I mean, it's great to be getting back to live in-person events. There's only so much you could show somebody on a computer screen. It's it's amazing what a, a real-life live conversation is like. Will you be speaking at in Nashville or at any of these other upcoming trade shows? Actually, I have two presentations in Nashville. Okay. Uh, the first one is Monday, and that's a program that we've been doing for a number of years now. It's an interactive program. It's called Test Your Code Knowledge, where we put questions up on the screen. <laughs> we instantly poll the participants. If we get a strong consensus that people get the right answer, we move on to a different topic. So it's, it's nice in the sense that it's an evolving program, and no two of them will be the same because it's all function about the, the knowledge of the audience coming into the program. And then I'm doing another one Tuesday afternoon that talks about what the ICC Healthcare Committee has been doing over the past couple of years in terms of changes to the International Building Code and International Fire Code. Well, if you're listening to this before that happens, you should check it out because Bill is a fantastic presenter, a great trainer. I know I've, I've seen a few of your recordings. There's, they're on your website as well. We might as well plug that, right? Koffel.com, uh, K-O-F-F-E-L.com. Is that right? That's correct. All right. And you have another lot. You have a bunch of webinars coming up too, right? Yeah, we've had, you know, we kind of got distracted during COVID, got away from it, but we are uh, trying to do, at least on a quarterly basis, webinars for whoever is interested. And we take suggestions uh, from 
past participants of topics. We talk to our staff, what seems to be presenting problems out in the field, and we'll offer uh, webinar topics on that. Again, that's all up on our website as well. And you know, we'll put this up on our website too if, when you send me the link. Yeah, and maybe we'll collaborate down in Nashville and come up with something else pretty cool to do. So, um, all right, really appreciate the time, Bill. It was a pleasure getting to know you a little bit better, and I want to uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, John. Take care. And and thanks everyone for listening. We know that there's many podcasts out there, and you've chosen to listen to ours. So thanks very much for that. Uh, check out the show notes. We'll put uh, Bill's website link in there for sure, and a lot of the other things that we talked about. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share this with a friend, put it on social media, leave a rating, a review, whatever you can do is is helpful. And to catch all the latest and greatest from STI, please check out our website at www.stifirestop.com. And until next time, this is The Burn. <laughs>